I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. I'm Atish Padi, your host for today. And we are going to be discussing the struggles of democracy in Pakistan. To do that with me today are Shrey Khanna and Arushi Kataria. Hi, Shrey and Arushi. How are you doing? Hi, Atish. I'm doing well. Thank you. Hey, Atish. I'm doing good as well. In this discussion, we will be using as a reference point a book by Maya, to which Arushi will talk about. And then we shall discuss in detail some of the arguments that she presents about why Pakistan and India, even though they were born at the same time as, as independent nations, democracy has, has largely worked and been, been accepted in India while it has struggled in Pakistan. So Arushi, do you want to talk a little bit more about the book and tell us about what its arguments are? Right. So to just sort of introduce who Maya Tudor is to those who don't know, she is, is an associate professor of government and public policy at the at Oxford. Her research focuses on the origins of stable, democratic and effective states across the developing world. And her specific focus is on South Asia. The book we're talking about today is called The Promise of Power, which is based upon her dissertation in 2010 which actually won the Gabriel Allen Prize for the best dissertation in comparative politics. The book begins by telling us how Pakistan and India were formed at the stroke of midnight on August 14th and August 15th, 1947, and their independent leaders were Muhammad Ali Jinnah and Jafarlal Nehru. And these were the leaders that presided over the creation of these two countries that had been carved out of what was unified British India. And as most explanations for why, how democracies evolve, it should have been equally unlikely for either of these countries, both India and Pakistan, to become stable democracies. Both of these countries emerged from nearly a century of colonial rule. With broadly similar state institutions, they were governed as infant democracies until, you know, their constituent assemblies wrote new constitutions. And both countries saw a massive refugee crisis after the partition, though obviously Pakistan's was larger uh, relative to its population. Both are extremely ethnically diverse countries and they have been, you know, destabilized by both external and subnational challenges to their territorial integrity within the nation. Yet, despite the fact that these countries come from very, very similar backgrounds, from very similar contexts, these two countries have embarked on two very, very different trajectories when it comes to their democracies. Um, Pakistan's constitution making from the start was mired in, you know, conflict and national elections were perpetually delayed. While, you know, eight national administrations are circled through power with increasing rapidity. Um, whereas in India, this wasn't the case. India rapidly ratified the world's largest constitution in early 1950. It has held free and fair elections on the basis of, nas- of universal adult suffrage in 1952. And it has installed and elected a chief executive who subordinated the military and civilian bureaucracies. And these are some of the very key differences that existed and what makes it's so interesting to study India and Pakistan is obviously the fact that they came from such similar backgrounds. So that's a little bit about why Maya Tudor wrote the book, what were her interests. And to lastly talk about what her co-argument is that first, the different kinds of social classes that lead 
to India and Pakistan's independence movement. And secondly, the strength of the dominant political party, which each country had its own, were the most important causes of India and Pakistan's divergent democratic trajectories. The two claims are that class interests dominating each country's independence movement critically impact the post-independence regime type directly. And this is a large part of her claim. And social groups in British India desired material gains and greater social prestige. But which political goals were perceived to promote upward mobility was relative to not just the wealth and social status of class groupings, but existing patterns of colonial patronage. And she says that this, again, further plays into the kind of political parties that both of these countries saw leading the nationalist movement, and then which go on to impact the kind of regime they had, as well as the regime stability that these countries witnessed. Right. So basically, it seems to be that because in Pakistan, the, the movement for Pakistan began and was formulated and, and, and propagated by a class of people that that were so they didn't have to maybe contend with as much of the other difficulties that the Indian national movement had to contend with and then come to terms with so that India could become a, a much more inclusive. The idea of India could become much more inclusive, so to speak, right? Because India had to contend with uh, with various kinds of identities in the sense that there was no caste division and, and the and the fact that many of the leaders came from various different backgrounds. And therefore India had to talk about caste and, and linguistic diversity, which Pakistan, because of its leaders, class composition, didn't really have to. Because is that is that a is that a fair argument? Yeah, I agree that that's a very very fair characterization of trying to understand the differences. And I think just borrowing from what the book says is that these class identities tend to become a more important, you know, determinant of political action when there are large, you know, changes that are occurring because especially big economic changes, typically say towards greater industrialization, urbanization or international migration. And it's because these changes are often accompanied by changes in social structure. Um, and therefore, political institutions have to, you know, change what has been, you know, what is their current status quo. Now, if we were to particularly say, take the case of Pakistan, is that their movement was being led by colonially entrenched landed aristocracy. and uh, this itself made it very unlikely that Pakistan would ever become a democracy in the long run because the landed aristocracy was politically overrepresented and it was disproportionately a very, very large group that stood to lose a lot in case changes were implemented that would be more representative in nature of the actual society. And that, you know, it could guarantee that it, they will lose their political dominance that they currently held on to. And therefore, a landed aristocracy, which had such a disproportionate share of material resources and power, was very likely to oppose a regime that would institutionalize, you know, opportunities that would redistribute material resources as well as political capital to other groups. However, in India, the case is completely, uh, or at least slightly not this. It was that an urban, educated middle class formed and dominated the Indian independence movement and this made it possible, though by no means inevitable, that a post-independent India would be democratic in nature. This is because middle class strategically forge whatever alliances they can to promote upward mobility. In a historically specific context, you know, an or which has a well-developed state apparatus, an underdeveloped economy and a colonial regime that has, you know, large landowners that are unwilling to devolve power, it is the urban educated middle class of colonial India that stood up to gain. That in case there was redistribution, they would gain employment, they would gain political power. 
And they could do all of this only if they advocated for a very, very representative political regime. And while this class initially was looking at only very limited enfranchisement, they realized that, you know, even they couldn't get the kind of government they wanted if they were only looking for gains for themselves. And therefore, the strategic pursuit of its own interest led to it widening the demand for, you know, institutionalization of universal adult franchise and other democratic institutions in the pre-independence decades. And therefore, we understand that because these became the demands of the Indian independence movement, when India became independent, these demands had to be fulfilled. And that is why we see that these initial class interests also began to determine what kind of promises, you know, the party that came into power after independence would have to fulfill. Right. Right. So, Shri, let's bring you in here. Okay. How much of what, what Arushi said about the book, how much of it has to do with the fact that the founders of Pakistan were landed aristocracy versus in India, it was the educated middle class? Because in effect, in both countries, they were elites, right? They, they were not representative of the large majority of the country. So, right. whether that argument makes more sense than, than, than uh, an argument that I want to make right now is that because the founding movement movement in Pakistan, the, the idea of Pakistan was based entirely on religious identity. Uh, they didn't have to contend with every other issue. They didn't have to contend with economic reforms uh, in the sense of uh, you know land reforms to, to provide opportunities to people or, or any of the other challenges that India had to face because it was based around religion. What do you think? Yes, I agree. Look at the trajectory of Indian National Congress and All India Muslim League. Before the you know coming of Gandhi, they were both aristocratic parties. But what happened after Gandhi came into the picture and he kind of made Congress a mass movement. Membership of Congress was you know given to masses for a very petty amount, and this this led to the you know expansion of many Indians becoming part of the Congress and joining that nationalist discourse. As opposed to the Pakistan movement, which was led by aristocracy from start till the end. And importantly, the role of the Muslim middle classes at that time, it was pretty instrumental in providing them the, you know, the mass support. Because for the Muslim middle classes, the dangers of, dangers of Hindu middle class, you know, dominating India in post-independent uh, scenario. So that, would, that was a pretty significant danger seen by Muslims of India at that time. And that led to, you know, this demand that uh, if there is a Pakistan, there is a state, then we will be migrating to that state and we'll safeguard the resources. We'll have monopoly of resources. Because if you follow the, you know, trajectory of Pakistan movement from that time of uh, Alama Iqbal, this idea comes. And here it is important to remember that the Islam argument that you were, you were, you know, alluding to, that Pakistan is a is the earliest experiment of the political Islam. When it came into being, it was the first Islamic country which called itself a Islamic Republic. So none none of the other countries in the world were then using this phraseology and the ideas of you know Alama Iqbal who said that. Even though Hindus and Muslims, they have, you know, different, and not Allama Iqbal, Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan, sorry, Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan. And he says that even though Hindus and Muslims, they have different kind of, you know, numerical uh, representation in India and Muslims being minority, their share in the resources of the country should be equal. So this idea that even though Muslims are less in number, they should get equal resources as Hindus. 
and this then argument when uh, through Aligarh Muslim University it entrenches into the Muslim middle class that you know we we need that equal share of the state resources and then it sees the Pakistan movement as a as a kind of respite from the potential domination by Indian Hindus. So that religion part it certainly played an important role, but it its limitations, you know, what you said that other diversity-based differences based on caste, based on language, they were ignored and then the consolidation happened on the basis of the religion. But what happened afterwards was even though the country was created in the name of Islam, we saw that, you know, Bangladesh, East Pakistan, it broke away in 1971. Because of those linguistic differences, the movement started with when uh, West Pakistan and this aristocratic elite imposed Urdu on Bengali Muslims. And then those, those energies which were, you know, kept kind of suppressed, that those linguistic, those caste, those class-based differences, uh, they came out after that the danger from Hindu was not there. And then those energies, those linguistic energies, they begin to matter. Now there is, if we are talking about Pakistan currently, there is a one Pashtun nationalist movement that is going on. And then there is long-running Baloch insurgency that is going on. They are all demanding, you know, rights on the basis of ethnicity. The state, Pakistani state, the seed as an agent of uh, Punjabi domination. Then there is even in Punjab, there is a demand for separate province. So those energies, which were, you know, suppressed by this monolithic idea that we are all Muslims and nothing else matters. They started, you know, coming up after the independence of Pakistan and then they showed. And lastly, one more point is that in his study of how Indian army was kind of, uh, you know, proofed by independent Indian leaders, Stephen uh, Wilkins, he, he says that, you know, the domination of the army in the in the uh, domination of Punjabis in the army, it was a very significant phenomenon at that time. And after partition, while most Punjabis, Punjabi Muslims, they were represented in Pakistani army, India did, you know, India under Prime Minister Nehru, it took significant proofing measures under which the recruitment from other areas, which were ignored by the British, the, it, it were to be, you know, increased so as to make the Indian army kind of evenly spaced out among all ethnicity. Even today we see Punjabis, you know, they kind of dominate the Indian armed forces. But yeah, but there was, you know, at the time of independence, the ratio was much larger. And as a result of that, that the colonial nature of, you know, Pakistan that you see, the Punjabi domination, it, it also the kind of the elite convergence that happens, the Punjabi businessmen and Punjabi military officers what is called uh, Pakistani mil-establishment, mil they, they converge and then they exploit the resources. It is seen in Pakistan like that. So that is also, I think, one of the significant factors into taking Pakistan where it is now. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that great answer. So, so basically, uh, I didn't do a final point. Basically, India tried to go out of its way to actually refute the martial racist nonsense that the British yes. had propagated. Right. Yes. And also, just another thing adding on, you were talking about the role of the Muslim middle classes in, in colonial India that were integral to the formation of Pakistan, right? And I think that also shows in the fact that these muhajirs, as they went on to be called, that those migrated from northern India to Pakistan, they also, the, their influence also shown in the fact that their language, Urdu, became the national language of Pakistan, even though the like people born 
as Urdu as their mother tongue in in Pakistan is, is very few, right? And right. W- what do you think about that? Yeah, so it's like, you know, that uh, the prime example of that aristocracy initially taking it over the Pakistani state and then gradually because the state, the Pakistani state, the area in which it comes into being, it is a Punjabi dominated area and those Punjabis are much more in the army which eventually comes to dominate the scene because, you know, this is the activity which is happening all over the third world at the time. Army is coming over, it is taking over because the political leadership is not there to, you know, provide that regime stability, which is there in India. So that's why India is seen as an exception among all those post-colonial countries which have stable democracy. And then army comes in Pakistan and that is meant by Punjabi officers. And then they appropriate that Urduness that, okay, Urdu is our national identity, a part of our national identity. And eventually what happens is the Muhajirs are sidelined. They they start um, demanding their own uh, Jinnapur or Jinnastan. And even they lose out at, in favor of the Punjabi army person and the, the aristocrats. Right, right. So coming back to the book, Arushi, so starting with the landed aristocracy argument that uh, Tudor will, what does she relate to it after that? What, what is the next step in the in the book? Right. So I think the next step in the book is just exactly that the class interests that motivated, you know, the independent, the people who were fighting for independence in these countries go on to also formulate the nationalist ideologies that, you know, differ in the content in both of these countries. For instance, uh, and, and the point is that the presence of this, you know, programmatic content within this nationalist ideology that each of these countries had their own effects the country's likelihood to one, become a democracy and then later the stability of that democracy itself. Now, and this is some sort of an organizational resource where if it exists, it could be utilized to resolve any conflicts that, you know, emerged in the post-independence era. And this is what India saw, that there was a very large commitment to ensuring upward mobility. There was a commitment to equality. There was commitment to having free and fair you know, elections, these were the demands that were put forward by the urban educated middle class. But Pakistan, Pakistani nationalism was not problematic. It was defined almost wholly just in opposition to Congress, the Indian National Congress, and was characterized by neither clear principles nor practices that were associated with these principles. So there was no clear picture of what a post-independent Pakistan would look like and what would, you know, the nationalist movement in the party do to achieve this. Now, what this weak form of nationalism meant was that Pakistan's political party was unable to invoke any form of programmatic basis for, you know, reconciling the regime build, you know, reconciling, you know, any sort of regime building activities. They weren't able to say that because we wanted to do this, these are the steps we should take because there was no because we want to do this to begin with. Indian nationalism was defined not as merely opposition to colonial rule, but also with an adherence to a set of economic and social principles, as well as costly actions that they knew would cost certain groups their power, their clout. And with associated with all of these actions were certain principles that, you know, independent India was supposed to espouse. And the presence of this programmatic nationalism became valued in and of itself in India meant that upon independence, India's governing political party, which was the Indian National Congress, was more able to reconcile post-independence state-building conflicts by saying that, listen, this is a substantive goal that we have. 
And this is why we need to make this political compromise because this is what we have promised the very people who have ensured that we come into power. At the same time, the very content of this nationalism that was espoused by each of these parties is very different. And this affects the regime type. So while the presence of programmatic content itself decides regime stability, one could say, the content of this nationalism itself is responsible for regime type. Now, if nationalism was centered around egalitarian norms, which was the case in India, then democratic forms of government were more likely to be adopted as a basis for, you know, even how the party was organized. And because these norms had become symbolically important to party members, it would immediately be reflected in larger society as well. Upon Indian independence, there was little benefit and substantial cost to rejecting these egalitarian norms because people had been demanding this for so long. In contrast, Pakistani nationalism was not egalitarian simply because one of who was demanding it. And this mattered little because that nationalism was very weakly institutionalized. And so this is the second step of the argument that right from who is demanding and, you know, who is demanding the independence movement goes on to determine the regime type and the regime stability. And between that, it starts to determine the very party that will govern an independent nation. And because of the fact that the class composition of these movements was so different, it led to very, very different ideas of what, you know, independent Pakistan and independent India would look like, or rather not look like, because there were no ideas of what Pakistan would look like. And within that, the nationalism itself, whether it was merely in contrast to what India is and we didn't want to be that versus what British India was and we don't want to be that, so we're going to espouse certain principles and values became the second, is the second building block of Tudor's argument as to why India and Pakistan had such divergent paths. Right. Right. So, Shri, from what I get from what Arushi said about the book, and and like, uh, so I have like a wild, again, thing that I, I want to float and you can tell me if that makes sense in the context of everything we've discussed, is that maybe because of this lack of coherence in a political theory, so to speak, of what Pakistan should be, or an economic political vision, because of all the reasons that Arushi laid out, was that was that why Pakistan felt it was so important for it to keep the Kashmir issue going or, or like just begin with that? Because its entire, you know, reason for existence dependent on obviously being all Muslim majority states in India must become part of Pakistan. And so therefore to make a separate Islamic country for, for South Asian Muslims. And therefore, because there was no other coherent vision holding the country together, is that why they felt it so necessary right out after independence to, to you know, create that kind of chaos. Certainly. In the original plan, many Pakistanis say that, you know, when the Pakistan, the, the key in Pakistan is Kashmir, when it, uh, the term that Pakistan that came about, that key in Pakistan is Kashmir, P is Punjab. So, but, you know, for the movement, which is saying that we, for Indian Muslims, we are going to create a state, create a state in which they will flourish and uh, they will compete with Indian Hindus in that in that framework. And in that context, uh, you know, the, the Kashmir issue, it is it is very important for them because if Kashmir becomes, you know, a secular entity or it remains with India, then it, it creates problems for that vision of, of a Muslim state justifying the creation of Pakistan. And that's why the, the, the Pakistan's argument on Kashmir, they fell, you know, they fell short after the creation of Bangladesh that here was a Muslim state. It did not work out. Islam is a religion. It's not a political way of organizing a society. 
and for but the revival of political Islam that has happened in the late 70s and 80s and it eventually impacted the society in Kashmir as well. But for Pakistan also, the Kashmir issue is central to their identity. They fought a war soon after the independence. And that also, that war also led to, you know, the entrenchment of army in the army and, you know, things military in the national psyche. Right. Because because you need that army, you need a strong army to take Kashmir back. So unless you have a strong army, there is no likelihood that you are going to take, to take Kashmir back. So you need, you need that strong army. So the army support, the society support for a strong army, the Praetorian nature of the state. It, it also, you know, that Kashmir issue, it also facilitated that army's strong role in Pakistani society and politics. All right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So it's time for a break. And when we are back, we will be discussing how everything we've discussed so far in the book applies to Pakistan's current reality. Because we have been seeing a lot of instability in Pakistan currently with, with what's happening with Imran Khan. And yeah, we shall discuss that on the other side. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're listening to All Things Policy. And in this episode, we have been discussing why the fate of democracy in India and Pakistan have been so radically different, despite the fact that both countries were born at the same moment. Uh, right. So just following on from that, Pushe, of everything we've spoken about so far, how do you think this reflects in what is happening in Pakistan currently with, with the Imran Khan stuff that's going on? And, and, the, and yet another example of instability in Pakistan, where, where an elected representative could not complete his full term, which has never like which has, hasn't happened in Pakistan so far, right? Not a single elected civilian leader has completed his full term as, as prime minister. So how how are these playing out uh, now? Yeah, so in 2018, Imran Khan came to power. It was a sort of, you know, hybrid arrangement in which the power was to be shared between the civilian leadership in the form of Imran Khan and the army supporting it as well. Previously, what happened was there was a decade of democracy from 2008 to 2018. There were two two governments which came. And, you know, while we say this, that no one prime minister has completed his term, those two, you know, those two parliament, because we are talking about parliamentary democracy, and those two parliament, they finished their tenure, first under PPP and then under PMLN. So that happened, but even in those governments, there were, you know, frequent change of prime ministers and then finally an army was playing a hand after uh, Musharraf's ouster army had to play his it's a hand from behind and after the shortlisted Imran Khan and you know the elections were rigged in his favor other parties they did not get media coverage there was blanket ban on it the there was fragmentations of uh, fragmentation of existing political parties and into you know supporting Imran Khan that somehow Imran Khan should win and he won subsequently. So there was a sort of a new kind of hybrid settlement which came up. But eventually, because the, uh, and this is a separate topic, but eventually the development of army's rule in Pakistan, what has happened is that they have mastered this art of, you know, what usually, what is called Sher Ali model. So there was this bureaucrat, Sher Ali Khan, and he gave this idea that, you know, power and responsibilities are two different things. While power, we have to, you know, we need the power in society. 
but responsibility we do not need to take if we take responsibility then it will you know harm the role of if things go south then you know the thing then it will harm army's image in the society so we need to take power but give responsibility to civilian leaders and he put his ideas in 70s and then the yeah, experiment it was part of that eventually what happened during this decade of democracy in 2008 to 2018 army was doing that similar thing laying its hand from behind and letting the civilian government take all the responsibility for the actions but on the on all the major decisions power was in army's hand but this time 2018 this experiment with it failed because that the contradiction in in this aspect of the you know power sharing that power will remain with the army but you are also ready to share that some of the power and all of the responsibility for all the wrong that are going to come and eventually they had a fallout in october last year imran khan and the army leadership and then subsequently it was clear that uh, imran khan will have to go and now we are what we are looking at is i don't know how to characterize it but it's another period of uncertainty because the new government has come but then again there is a step resistance to it in civil society and then the economic challenges that they face they are they are enormous so this another tumultuous space in pakistan politics right right so arushi from what we have covered in the book so far i just wanted to know if some of the other factors are also discussed right so from, from top of my mind it also occurs to me that probably because of the geography of pakistan you know it, it couldn't have helped it you know nation building project right this is between the two wings of earthwell pakistan east pakistan west bangladesh and uh, pakistan west pakistan <laughs> there was the huge landmass of india so it couldn't have been easy for them to actually you know build a common identity address some of the challenges of linguistic and ethnic diversity how much has tudor talked about that in the book and what is the importance that she plays from that so i think given the background and like Tudor being a political scientist she has not talked a lot about the geography of Pakistan maybe a key factor for you know why it maybe has an unstable autocracy or why it never even evolved into a proper democracy she does acknowledge that previously there have been discussions on you know maybe the role of leaders such as you know the explicit emphasis placed on how gandhi was as a leader or nehru was as a leader versus jinnah and uh, they be a reason for why these countries had completely different trajectories or how both of these countries came from slightly different economic requisites for what you know the general modernization theory that as the country becomes richer it's going to become a democracy but then we have to remember that both countries sort of came from similar backgrounds again another fact is often said that you know colonial inheritances play a role and this is where i think you know the previous point of the military being disproportionately large in comparison to the size of the population could come into play and also the kind of bureaucracy that you know these countries inherited and how one made a demonstrated effort to change the bureaucracy as it had been inherited versus a country that did not do that another is also the international influences of who was supporting india in its movement to a democracy versus who was not the different kind of ethnic politics that play into india and pakistan which have been discussed by shri as well and uh, this idea of you know this connection of islam this underscored connection of islam being tied to more authoritarian rules and 
a large part of this argument coming from the fact that women are, are given a very differing socio-political position, you know, in Islam. And uh, lastly, and most importantly, is that we've always assumed that there is a primacy given to the political party. Yet, for Tudor, that is not the case. Therefore, Tudor's key critical argument is causal in nature, as I hinted at when we began, where for her, if you did not have the class composition of a part of, you know, that was willing to make concessions, that was willing to cede political power, that was willing to allow redistribution, you probably wouldn't have the political parties that evolved in independent India. And if such parties didn't evolve, then maybe India also wouldn't have seen a stable democracy. So therefore, while Tudor acknowledges that previously these explanations have existed and they can in some part explain why differing, tra- differing trajectories were seen in India and Pakistan, According to her, still in a more comparative analysis perspective, maybe the class composition of the independence movement and its role in shaping the founding political party of independent India and Pakistan plays the most crucial role in determining which country became a democracy and which did not. Right, right. I, I think probably because, you know, uh, she's a political scientist and, and there's more interest in structural reasons behind this country, maybe the argument about personalities themselves do not interest that much, right? But but to me, it, it appears that, I think Ambedkar, for example, is very instrumental in, in, in the fact that, in very important in the fact that India has become a democracy, right? Because there's a long history of reform movements in India, not just Ambedkar, but also from various other people like, like Fule. But especially Ambedkar, that, that forced our leaders to ensure that the inherent hierarchies within Hinduism, which is a majority religion in India, had to be contended. Right. And therefore, some of those structural inequalities, at least in the constitution, at least politically, would not be, you know, entrenched like they did in Pakistan, as you said, because of the, you know, landed aristocracy. Because, I mean, there's, this, there's a very famous quote about during Ayub Khan's regime, how some of the Pakistan economists were saying how, you know, all of the wealth of Pakistan is concentrated within 20 families in the country. Something ridiculous like that. That didn't happen in India because many of the existing hierarchies within Hinduism might, like, people had to take a deep, look at it and there were many reformists within the freedom struggle that understood that it was important for uh, such hierarchies to be uh, taken care of. So, so yeah, uh, Shrey, what do you think about this argument of personalities and self being important? Because again, adding on to what I've already said, maybe if Jinnah had also like lived longer and, and Liyakad Ali Khan had not been assassinated, Pakistan might still have managed to be more stable. Yeah, people have uh, importance in the course of history, no doubt about that. But as far as this issue is concerned, I'll, I'll side with, side with Tudor because you see, even the Congress, the organizational ability that she is talking about after Nehru, what happens? There is a strong Congress party, which is there, uh, right? Which takes it over. And if you follow the international media coverage at the time, they were not sure of India, uh, you know, remaining a democracy after Nehru. But it was the organizational strength of, of Congress party, which gave another prime minister and then another after it. Compare this with Pakistan, that, you know, Jinnah goes and then Liyakabali Khan is assassinated. And then there is nobody because that, that, that the primary consolidation behind which the Pakistan movement occurred was already done. The Pakistan was there and there was no other plan for it, uh, our future plan for it. And there was no mass organization. So, uh, you know, that organizational ability to meet the student of political science, it makes much more sense than the ability uh, or the presence or absence of 
one individual in the course of, you know, when they're talking at systemic level, at a country level, I think that organizational ability is much more important. All right. Thanks. That was, that was great. Arushi, do you have any final thoughts? No, I think I completely agree with Shrey that, you know, there's a, a need to understand, especially when it comes to ideas of regime type and regime stability, while we've often placed an emphasis the religion, the kind of legislature that these countries had. It's also important to understand that if we're assuming that these countries were to be democracies, you would also need to examine the very people that were forming these democracies that would be important for leaders to stay in political power. And while in India, it became imperative for political leaders to, you know, make these politically costly decisions that would cost them their own power, their material wealth. They knew that they couldn't stay in power if they didn't do that, whereas the case in Pakistan was completely the opposite, where the landed aristocracy was a part of the nationalist movement. They knew that and they were the most powerful group. They were overrepresented in society as well. And it just meant that if such a large group is unwilling to cede power, then maybe the changes that despite coming from markedly similar backgrounds when, you know, India and Pakistan embarked on their journeys, the very characteristics of the people making up these nationalist movements and their parties then became responsible for these completely opposite trajectories that we've been seeing in these neighboring countries. All right, that was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Arushi and Shay, for joining me and discussing why India and Pakistan went on different paths in their democratic aspirations. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. We'll be back next time. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.